choir for that. I love that last line. No more stranger or a guest, but like a child, I'm home. I love that line. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open it to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 8. We'll pick up this week where we left off last. Um, we just continue to, to plow through uh, as we make our way through this Gospel. I hope it is, it's being encouraging to you as it has been encur- an encouragement to me. Uh, and today we get to, to witness uh, just a glimpse uh, of the power, the power of our King, the power of Christ uh, in the life of this man. Uh, overrun with demons. Let's, let's read God's word together. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him, begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear this as we prepare our hearts now uh, to to hear from you. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us in a mighty and powerful way. Uh, Lord, we we get a glimpse here of that transformative power of the gospel. Uh, And so, Lord, whether it is the the first time we have heard this truth or whether it is the thousandth time, I pray that we would search our hearts, that we would ask ourselves the hard questions, whether we have, like this man, experienced this transformation And Lord, that by your spirit, you would meet with us, you would speak to us so that we might grow in our love, our relationship, our adoration for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you, I hope, I'm sure, will recall from history class, I don't, y'all may have slept through history class, I don't know, but I hope you will remember uh, that in 1815... Uh, two of the great powers in the world, at least in terms of earthly powers at that time, met in what would come to be known as the Battle of Waterloo. On one side, you had the the French Empire led by one of the greatest commanders the world has ever known, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. And on the other side, you had an allied force kind of led by the, the United Kingdom, and their commander was the Duke of Wellington. Now, on paper, it seemed at least 
just there, if you just looked at it kind of overview, uh, that these two forces were fairly evenly matched. Uh, they, they had almost the same number of soldiers. There was one side, the, the Allied side had maybe a few more, uh, but they had the, the, the commander, they had Napoleon, so that kind of leveled out the playing field. And for at least a time, that, that equality kind of seemed to play itself out to the point that the Duke of Wellington was quoted uh, at one point as saying that the battle was the nearest run thing you have ever seen in your life. These two great forces, they were kind of duking it out, and it seemed that neither would give an inch, that neither would give any ground. But, of course, as the conflict played out, with the right strategic moves uh, and with the arrival of some timely reinforcements, uh, the Allied forces, they ultimately got the upper hand that uh, they forced Napoleon to surrender, to, to abdicate his throne, and they ended what was years of Napoleonic War uh, and the French Empire as it was then constructed. Again, the point is, is that though on paper both seemed to be equally matched, one power showed itself to be decisively greater. One power showed itself to be the one who was truly the only power that mattered. Now, I could have picked almost any period of human history to make this point this morning. If you go back through the pages, you're going to find over and over and over again, the powers of this world, they, they come to a head, and you see this, these battles take place, whether it was the Romans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the world wars, the civil wars. At all of these, you have two powers on both sides, and one of them has to come out on the top, okay? One of them has to prove itself greater. Now, I'll begin there this morning because as we turn to our Bibles, as we turn particularly to this passage before us, we're reminded that really from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the end, the story of redemption is the story of a great conflict that has occurred between two sides. On the one side, you have the seed of the serpent, right? That's what God said in Genesis 3. The seed of the serpent would be there. And then on the other hand, you have the seed of the woman. And the Old Testament is really playing that out, whether it is Cain and Abel, whether it is the people entering into the promised land. On, each, on one side, you have the seed of the serpent, and on the other, you have the seed of the woman. And they are battling it out for supremacy. They're battling it out to see who has the power until Jesus shows up on the scene and ultimately wins the decisive battle at the cross, right? It's there that the battle uh, ends. It's there where the battle really is won. Yes, Satan bruises his heel, but he, the, the true seed, the one seed, he crushes the head of the serpent. This is the battle that has taken place throughout redemptive history. And here, before Jesus goes to the cross we see just a kind of a glimpse of it as Jesus comes to, to heal this man. And so for us today, for those who are in many ways still participants in this cosmic battle, uh, we need to be reminded that, that it is a battle that we are still in. Yes, Jesus has won the decisive victory, but we're still in what a lot of commentators would say is kind of mop-up duty, right? The, the, the wars, the skirmishes are still going on. And so we are still in a fight. But we also need to be reminded 
of how the end is going to play out. We need to be reminded of who truly has the power here. You know, the reality is, is as we look out at the world, as I have looked out at the world this week, just in my own life, as you see the way that, that Satan is working in the world, as you see the way that, that this world has turned away from him in so many ways, the truth is, is it often feels like the powers are pretty evenly matched. As we face the trials of life, we forget who it is that is truly powerful. But today, today we are encouraged to find that the, the powers are not equal. We are encouraged to find that though Satan certainly is formidable, though he does have a power, we need to respect he does not stand a chance against the Holy One of Israel. He does not stand a chance against Jesus Christ our Lord. With a word, with a word, he can end it all. Jesus can end it all. With a word here, he transforms this man's life. With a word last week, he calmed the storm. Now that brings a lot of other questions that we don't have time to get into right now, but the point today is his word is powerful. It's powerful enough to overcome anything Satan may throw at us. And so today, I want us to consider these conflicting powers. And I want us to see our king and how truly powerful he is. So let's look at it together. First thing I want you to see here is demonic power. Demonic power. You see it there in verses 26, 27, and then in verse 29. Now you'll recall that, that Jesus last week had commanded his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee. And as they go, of course, the, the great storm comes up. And with a word, he calms the storm. And now, as they get to the other side, to this country of the Gerasenes, they are immediately faced with what is a terrible and a pitiful sight. This man possessed by demons. Now, Ben has described it for us, and all of the gospel writers describe it for us, too, that the state that this man was truly in. Uh, Luke says there that, that he had no modesty, uh, he, he had no uh, regard for other people, for himself, he was unclothed, he was naked for a long time. Matthew tells us that he was violent, violent against other people. Mark says he was violent against himself, that he cut himself. Uh, and then Mark also describes how, how he would just cry out day and night. Uh, we would guess maybe... Uh, terrible things he would say, maybe uncomprehensible things, maybe it was just gibberish, but he would cry out day and night. And then, of course, we know that he lived, all three gospel writers confirm, that he lived among the tombs. Uh, as one commentator put it so well, uh, as he described this man, he says, a healthy man has a horror of a decaying corpse and avoids defilement. It is only deranged people who have any desire for death and decay. And so we can say here with confidence that this man was deranged. And so it's no wonder that the people, they have tried their best to contain him. We read there uh, in verse 29 how they had bound him, but that they couldn't bind him, that, that he would break the shackles, that he would go and he would run through the countryside. Mark tells us that there was no one who had the strength to subdue him. Friends, what a, what a terrible condition this man is truly in. Uh, the demonic forces that he faced, they were so powerful that, that he was truly, it seems, 
at a loss for any kind of control. He could not control his life or the things that went on in it to the point that when Jesus asked him what his name is, he says it's Legion. Now, Roman Legion was anywhere from 2,000 to 5,000 men. Uh, and so either way, what this man faces is a great horde, right? He is overrun. And so they have, uh, they've ruined him socially. They've ruined him physically. They've ruined him mentally. And of course, they have ruined him spiritually. When Jesus comes on the scene, he says, what have you to do with me? Please, please do not torment me. We're going to come back to that statement in our second point. But just for now, I want you to to face the, the power of these forces. And on some level, we have to acknowledge that they are still very much active in our world today. You know, we live in a time where people would dismiss this type of thing as just the uneducated ideas of an ancient people. You know, they didn't know any better. They didn't have modern medicine. And so what they experienced, that that was not real. That wasn't really what they were dealing with. Maybe it was disease. Maybe it was a, a social disorder. Maybe it was mental illness. But friends, as those who claim to believe in a spiritual realm, and we do, we claim to believe that there is such thing as a spiritual realm, we, we need to recognize, we don't need to be so naive as to just chalk this up to, to history, to chalk this up to people that don't know any better. Though it seems in our time that, that Satan doesn't manifest his, his power in this way as often, though I have a theory about that that we're going to come back to, he still is very much active. And his power is nothing that we should scoff at. Being read from Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read from there also. In Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 1, the, the verse that, that being read says, And you were dead in your sins and trespasses and sins. But then in verse 2 it says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following who? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Friends, we can be sure that Satan is still at work in government. He's still at work in social structures. He's still at work in families. And he is still at work in lives. He is still doing these things in a real way. And so again, we'll read from Ephesians chapter 6. You remember what Paul says there. He says, our fight is not primarily against flesh and blood, but our fight is against whom? He says, let me get turned over here to it. He says there in verse 12 that it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our fight, at least in part, is against Satan. And what does Peter say about Satan? He says he's a prowling lion ready to pounce on his prey. Now look, we're going to see in a minute that 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 may not even be the greatest power that we face, but we should be aware. We we run ourselves into potential disaster that we spend so much time in our country, in our nation, uh, transforming our bodies through, through exercise, through diet, through all of these things. We spend so much time educating our minds, trying to get ourselves to a point where we know so much But so often we neglect 
the spiritual side of our lives. We, we don't put on the full armor of God. We don't build ourselves up in the strength of his word and the power that only he has. And I'm afraid we don't do it because we don't take seriously the enemy that we face. We don't think it's real. We don't think it really is a problem that that is there for us. Friends, what this passage is showing us is that it is there. It is real. And we need to be on guard. Demonic power. Secondly, in this passage, we see divine power. And look, this is the reason why we don't have to overreact. Certainly, we need to be aware, but this is the reason we don't have to run for the hills. We don't have to be afraid because there is a divine power. We've seen one side of the conflict. Now we see the other. And notice there in verse 28, the the demons, they cry out, what have you to do with us? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. Notice, these demons, they know exactly who it is that they are dealing with. They know that this is the second person of the Trinity incarnate. Jesus' disciples may not get it. Remember in 825, after he's calmed the storm, they say, who is this that commands the winds and the waves? They hadn't figured it out yet. But the demons, they get it. They know. And they're terrified, right? It makes you wonder if James had this particular instance in mind when he wrote in James chapter 2 and in verse 19, you believe in God and you do well. The demons, they believe in God too. And they tremble, right? It makes you wonder if he was thinking of this scene particularly. Here, they, they, these demons, they tremble before the king. And then in verse 30, they beg him not to throw them into the abyss. That, that place from Romans chapter, not Romans, Revelations chapter 20, uh, verse 3, where Satan and the demons will dwell forever. These demons, however many, however powerful they may be, in Jesus, they have met the one who is far greater, the one who, like the storms before, commands them with a word. In verse 32, they, they beg him, send us, don't, don't, don't destroy us, send us into those pigs. And don't miss, don't miss what Luke says. He gave them permission. He allowed, it was only at his word that they could do anything. It reminds you of the book of Job, right? At the very beginning, Satan is there and he, he wants to, to kind of sift Job. He, he wants to go and do these things, but he can't do it until when? Until God gives him permission. Now, again, that brings up a lot of questions, but for now, for today, what we should see is that nothing happens to us. Nothing happens in this world. There is no power out there that, that is outside of God's control. Anything that may happen in this world, anything that Satan does, anything that, that these demonic forces do, they are under the umbrella of our king, over his sovereign control and rule. So we can confess with 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign. Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. As we can sing, as we did last week, the, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word it will fail him. Jesus, he speaks the power of God's word to these demons and, and they have to listen. Now, many people, they, they have taken issue 
with what happens in verse 33. And I don't want to spend too much time here because I don't think it's that important, but I do want to say something about these poor pigs, right? Uh, So the pigs, they get thrown over the cliff and they die, and people say, now why did that have to happen? Why did the pigs have to die? Now, there's a lot of reasons that, that people give. Uh, one that says that, you know, it was really the demons that did it. It wasn't Jesus. But, of course, Jesus did give them permission to go. Uh, another argument is that the, the swine, at least in Jewish culture, were unclean. And so it was a good place for the demons to be in something that was unclean. Uh, the third argument goes that the demons, they had to go somewhere. They couldn't just go, like, torment the people. So they had to go into something. So he sends them into the pigs. Uh, but, but the argument that I think is best is really twofold. First, he's the creator God. Uh, and, you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 9 that, that he has the right to make some things for, for uh, destruction's sake, right? And he has the reason to make some things for glory. Uh, and so he can do what he wants to with the creation that he has. Uh, but then Philip Ryken says, and I think this is right, uh, that the pigs, how did they die? They died to the glory of God, right? They died demonstrating visibly for the world to see, for all in attendance to see the power that Christ has over the spiritual realm. What was invisible to most now is visible as these pigs run off the cliff and as they are defeated, as they drowned, Jesus' power over the demonic, it is shown, it's a great display of it. And we see that there's two great reactions to what happens. And that leads us to our next point. So we've seen the the power of the demonic. We've seen the power of the divine. But thirdly, I want you to see sin's power. Or maybe the the power of a sinful heart. You see it there in verses 34 through 37. Now when these these herdsmen, when they saw what Jesus did, they, they ran back into town and the news, it quickly spread so that everybody, they came out to see what had happened. And sure enough, when they get there, they find the, the demon naked man. He's, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's worshiping. He's in his right mind. He's clothed. Everything is great. Now, on some level, this should be a reason to rejoice. If nothing else, this man who, ha- who was a nuisance to them, who was a threat, who, who had tormented them for so many years, he was well. That's a reason to rejoice. Not only that, if they had even half of a heart to see that this man was now whole again, that should be a reason for them to celebrate. And then, of course, there's Jesus himself. Surely the one who could do this great thing, surely he is worthy of praise. Surely he is worthy to to be worshipped. Surely they will rejoice at one that's so powerful has come to their country. But notice what they say there in verse 37. It says, Then all the people of the surrounding country asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Why? Why is the question? Luke says that, that they're seized with a great fear. And look, that's, that's a trend that we've seen up until this point. If you think about Peter, he fell before him like a dead man. You think about Levi, they were afraid to see these great works of Jesus. But, but this, this is not an awe-inspired, reverent fear. No, this is, this is a true terror before Christ. And so again, the, the question is, why do they react that way? Well, most commentators agree that, that at least part of their problem with Jesus was, was what he had just done to their pigs. 
was what he had done to what was big business for them, big, big livelihood for them. Though Christ was clearly someone worthy of having around, they couldn't risk any more financial loss. They couldn't risk losing those things that were most precious to them. Look, we said earlier that there is a power that is maybe even more power than Satan, even more powerful than Satan and his forces. And friends, this is it. It's the power of a sinful heart, our own sinful hearts. These people's priorities, their desires, their hopes are so twisted that, that Satan, he doesn't have to possess them. He doesn't have to do, go to great lengths to get them to turn away from Jesus. No, even though they face the glorious truth, even though Jesus is there with them, their hearts reject him for financial gain, for stability, for pigs. They reject the Savior for created things. Friends, this is my theory on why we don't see, at least in the Western world, more demonic possession. It's because it's not necessary. Satan doesn't have to do it. He doesn't have to push us very far to get us to turn away from what Jesus is saying to us. Our hearts are, are all too ready to do that on their own. And maybe that's the other thing that, that frightens them here. Maybe it is the, the transformative power that Christ can bring to their lives. You know, the truth is, is we're, we're pretty satisfied with the way our lives are. We're pretty satisfied with the way we are. We don't want Jesus to do too much change. We would rather just be the way we are. And maybe that's what these people felt here, too. Maybe they didn't want to change the way this man had changed. And so, ultimately, they, they send Jesus away. They say, get out of here. The king is with them. And they run him away. Friends, how sad it is, how dangerous our own hearts can be. May we never miss Jesus. May we never send him away for the sinful desires of our hearts, which will never satisfy us, which will never give us the things that we truly want. Fourthly and finally, I want you to see the power of transformation. The power of transformation. You see it in verses 36, 38, and 39. Well, as they try to drive Jesus away, uh, this man who was once possessed by demons, once naked and once crazed, uh, he sits at the feet of his Savior, well and whole. And we see three things there. He's clothed, he's in his right mind, and he's ready to serve. In verse 38, he begs Jesus, let me go with you. And up until that point, again, that has been the trend. That Get in the boat and come on. Jesus gives him another call. He says, you go back home and you tell everybody what I have done for you. And he's willing to do it. He goes and he does that thing. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. And he is ready to serve. Friends, as we close, what is a wonderful, as we close, what this, as we close, this is a wonderful description of all of us who are resting in Jesus. The truth is, as Ben said, none of us are, are what we should be. Though we are not possessed by legions of demons, without Christ, we share much with this man spiritually. Again, uh, Philip Ryken, he says, 
the man that Jesus met was in nearly the worst condition that anyone can imagine. He was naked, lonely, violent, and insane. He was walking among the, among the dead. Yet even for all his misery, we can see ourselves in his situation because sin has similar effects on all of us. It exposes us naked in our guilt. It alienates us from one another, leaving us lonely and alone. It makes us violent, at least in our attitudes, if not in our actions. Spiritually speaking, we walk among the dead. Thus, the madman in the graveyard shows the wretchedness of our condition outside of Christ. Friends, we too need the miraculous, transforming power that only Jesus can bring. We need, like this man, to sit at his feet, still before him. We need to be clothed in his righteousness. We need to be given right minds, right thinking. And we need a new calling. One last quote. Uh, Ryle says, uh, Never is a man in his right mind till he's converted, or in his right place till he sits by faith at the feet of Jesus, or rightly clothed till he has put on the Lord Jesus. Real conversion, he says, is nothing else but the miraculous release of a captive, the miraculous restoration of a man to his right mind, the miraculous deliverance of a soul from the devil. So friends, I ask you today, we begin with this, I'll end with it. Have you experienced true power? Have you experienced divine, transformative power today? If not, don't push him away like these people. Don't run away from him. Don't ask him to leave. No, fall at his feet and find there all you will ever need. And then for those of us who have done that, those of us who are resting at his feet now, what is our calling today? What has Jesus done for you? That's a great question. That's, that's, that's a wonderful description of what the man was sent to do. Go tell what all has been done for you. Friends, that's, that's evangelism. That's what it means to go out into the world and to share the gospel. Just go and tell people what all Jesus has done in your life, what he has done for you. So the question is, is how much has he done? Do you see the depths of it? Have you experienced the heights of what it is to rest in Jesus? So, go and tell it. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this great power, as we consider your transformation that, that you bring into our lives, Lord, we rejoice that, that you See us at our worst. Uh, you see us like this man, naked, uh, insane, out of our minds. And you come and you, you get us. You come and you seek us out. You make us your own with the power of your word. Uh, and Lord, as we consider what that means, what you have saved us from, uh, Lord, we pray that, that our response would be to go out and to share the good news of the gospel, to go out and to tell people the, the greatest story we've ever heard. Jesus loves us. We know it because the Bible tells us so. We know it because the Holy Spirit is in our hearts transforming our lives. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you would uh, transform many other lives, those around us, those in our families, those in our world, uh, so that we might see many come to know Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.